Book of Revelation, chapter 1. I want to say hi to the Ventura campus. They'll be watching this. Ventura. We should, we should give them a little more love than that. Ventura campus, come on. Okay, so last week uh, when Bo was preaching, he covered verses 4 through 6. Skip 7 and 8, left those for me, and 9 through 11. So we'll be looking at verses 7 and 8 of Revelation chapter 1. The title of this message is Christ is Coming. And that is wonderful, glorious news that when you comprehend it, changes everything. The way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we hurt, the way that we grieve, the way that we hope, and the way that we act in this world is all changed by the glorious truth that Christ is coming. And that's what verse 7 speaks of. It says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is God's wonderful word. Let's pray. Lord, that your word would be alive in our hearts and our minds today. And that you give us great faith to believe your word and to receive your word. And that you give us great grace to obey your word and all the implications thereof. That we wouldn't merely be hearers, we'd be doers. And this truth that is before us, that Christ, you are coming again, is glorious and blessed and wonderful, and it really does change everything. And so change our lives according to it, Lord. Help us in light of your coming to live more faithfully. Help us to live with a greater sense of urgency. Help us to pursue greater sanctification in light of your coming. Help us to be faithful to your cause and purposes. Help us in our heartaches, Lord. There's, there's people today who are hurting so bad in our church and around the world. Help us as we read and watch the news and the world seems so radical. Help us to hope in you and your great victory over evil and the coming establishment of your kingdom. Give us great hope and joy, urgency, perseverance, and faithfulness by grace in light of your word. Please anoint me to teach and preach in a way that brings you wonderful, great glory and is helpful to us as a church. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, our young brother Bo last week kind of gave us John's introduction to the book of Revelation. He was explaining to whom he was writing and generally what he was writing about. And the thrust of that was Jesus. We caught that last week because the book is about Jesus. The book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus. We talked about that extensively in the first sermon. And John makes that clear. And in verses five and six, he said these wonderful things about Jesus. He says that this is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from his sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then John says in our text today about this one, this glorious Jesus in verse seven, behold, he is coming with the clouds. 
This one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, this one who loves us and has freed us from our sins, this one who is the faithful and true witness, he says, look, behold, pay attention, consider this. He is coming again. And that's really the crescendo of John's introduction. That's the high point. In fact, many would say that this is sort of the keynote for all of the book of Revelation. The high note, the big picture, the main thing that Jesus, who loves us and freed us from our sins, conquered sin, death, and the devil at the cross, is coming again to apply the full work of his redemptive acts on the cross to the world. And what the book of Revelation presents this as is the great hope of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is made up of this. Christ died, but Christ is risen and Christ is coming again. Those are the central truths of the Christian faith. Christ died, but Christ is risen and Christ is coming again. And what we must understand as we study the book of Revelation, as we think about the second coming of Jesus Christ, is that this is not doom and gloom. We hear a lot of talk about doom and gloom, and a lot of people look at the book of Revelation and say, this is doom and gloom, and think about eschatology, the study of the last things and the end times, and begin to think doom and gloom. That's not the intention of Scripture at all. That's not the truth of the second coming at all. The second coming of Jesus Christ is not about doom and gloom. It is about hope and joy and God's great victory over evil in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we ought to think of it in those ways. The second coming is to bring to us, when we doctrinally understand it, great hope and great joy, even though there is great tribulation and tremendous difficulties and scary things and heartache and things that are hard to understand. There is coming, and there will be in the end, the victory of Jesus Christ made manifest in this world. And that brings a believer great hope and great joy. So we're going to deal with some of the details of the text, and then we'll kind of look uh, broadly at the doctrine of the second coming of Jesus Christ, the return of Christ. So it begins in verse 7 by saying, Behold... He is coming with the clouds. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. What John in writing this is doing now is he's alluding to the book of Daniel and a passage from the seventh channel chapter. I'm thinking TV. (laughs) Channel seven in the book of Daniel (laughs) is what he's thinking of in modern terms. He's thinking of the seventh chapter and this, uh, don't put that up yet, thank you. And this prophecy concerning the Messiah and his coming. And the Jews always understood that in Daniel chapter 7, it's a picture of the Messiah, the deliverer, the king who was to come. And Daniel here is invoking in the reader's mind that context. And the context is the vanquishing over evil by God in the delivery of the kingdom to Christ and it being made manifest on the earth. So when John says, behold, he is coming with the clouds. He's wanting us to think about the context of Daniel chapter 7, God's victory over evil and the kingdom being delivered to Christ manifest in the world. So the passage he's alluding to, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel writes and says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. That's Jesus, here's a little pause, 
Son of Man is Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Gospels. And the reason that he employed that is because it made his Jewish audience think about the promises from the prophet Daniel and pointed him out to be the promised deliverer. With the clouds of heaven, there's that reference, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, a reference to the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting domain which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So this is what John has in mind, and this is what he wants us to have in mind. When we read that phrase in verse 7, behold, he, Jesus, is coming with the clouds, that it has to do with his dominion, his rulership. And what is evidentially clear to us is that it has to do with his second coming, because Jesus referenced it as such during his first coming. Look at Jesus in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. He says, And then the sign of the Son of Man, okay, speaking of himself, same phraseology from Daniel, Jesus speaking, will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Same language as Daniel, same language as Revelation, Jesus speaking. Coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So Jesus makes it clear that this has to do with another coming. It wasn't his first coming. That's when he's talking about it. It was a promised second coming. It's the fulfillment of Old Testament uh, promises and prophecies of the Messiah ruling over the nations, confirmed by Jesus in his own words as having to do with his return, made possible by his first coming and the work of the cross, where Satan, sin, death were defeated made possible at his first coming in the work of the cross where the kingdom was inaugurated but fulfilled at the second coming where the kingdom is consummated. The kingdom is present but somewhat invisible now. The kingdom will be tangible and visible when Christ comes again. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, has all of those thoughts in the phrase. And then he says, the next phrase of verse seven, and every eye will see him. Now, this is in juxtaposition to his first coming. The first coming of Jesus was localized, Israel. The second coming of Jesus will be global. Every eye will see him. This also was made clear by Jesus, again, Matthew 24. He says of his second coming, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. But behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Look, he's out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. In other words, look at me for a second. If they're saying to you, Jesus came, but it was secret. Not everybody knows. And there are people in the land who say that. There are cults that believe that, that Jesus came a while ago, but it was kind of secret on the down low. Jesus already told us, don't believe them. He says, for just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. It's not going to be hidden. It's not going to be secretive. It's not going to be esoteric. It's not going to be, I wonder if that's it. It will be like, pakow, lightning flashing from east to west. And John says, every 
I will see him. So the first coming then is contrasted with the second coming. The first coming was localized. The second coming is globalized. The first coming of Christ was marked by lowliness, right? When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it was only witnessed by a few shepherds and eventually a few magi. And really only a few hundred people in Israel witnessed his resurrection. But his second coming will be marked not by lowliness, but by power and majesty and glory. And it won't be witnessed by a few in a local area. It will be witnessed by the whole world. All the world will experience the second coming and its implications. It says in the next phrase of the verse, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Here John is alluding to another Old Testament passage from the book of Zechariah second to last book in the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah is what John is alluding to. And the context in that is very similar. The context, don't put that up yet, thank you. The context is the last days and all of the nations gathered against Israel and in particular Jerusalem and Messiah the King coming to deliver Israel and Jerusalem and ultimately bring God's kingdom as the foes are gathered. That's a context in the book of Zechariah. And that's what John is alluding to. So now, in that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. This is a reference to the battle of Armageddon, Revelation 16 and 19. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace, excuse me, and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. There's a language John is using. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. There's a language. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of the firstborn. So that was written to Israel. And what John is doing and what Jesus was doing in Matthew 24 is applying it to the whole world, okay? So now the whole world will see his coming. Originally, this was written to Israel, just as originally the gospel was brought to Israel, and then it was meant for the whole world. So now John expands that passage to be addressed to the whole world, even as the gospel is. So when it says, he'll come on the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him, that means everyone who is guilty of sin, right? Why was Jesus pierced? Isaiah the prophet said in chapter 53, channel 53, if you will, he was pierced for our transgressions. Who pierced him? All of those who have sinned against him. That is all of humanity will see him. And all the tribes of the earth, originally applied to Israel, now to the whole world, all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. That is to say, all who failed previously to recognize him at his coming will be mourning, either, as is the context in Zechariah, because they missed the Messiah and now they repent, or because they missed the Messiah and they still refuse. And so judgment is what's being brought to them. Either way, the coming will bring mourning amongst the unrepentant. So what we have very clearly now is a contrast in Scripture of the first coming and the second coming. 
What I'm trying to impress upon you is that the second coming of Jesus Christ is absolutely necessary for biblical Christianity. It's not a secondary issue. It's not a, oh yeah, maybe he's coming back. The whole thing fits together in two comings. Look how they're contrasts. The first coming was lowly, but the second coming will be glorious. The first coming was local. Few saw. The second will be global. All will see. First coming was uh, some pierced him and rejected him. All will recognize him. First coming, many rejoiced over his seeming defeat. The second coming, there will be mourning resulting in repentance or judgment. The book of Hebrews in the ninth chapter brings it all together for us. It says in verse 28, Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, first coming. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So to bring the full results of the work of the cross to bear on the world. Okay, this is biblical Christianity. Christ came a first time to pay the price for our sins. He's coming a second time to apply the implications of the cross to the whole world. Commenting on Hebrews 9.28, an author says this, Just as the first coming of Christ accomplished the major purpose of God to provide salvation, so the second coming of Christ will accomplish the major purpose of God to place everything in subjection to Jesus Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's see it come together in the book of 2 Thessalonians. Keep a finger in Revelation and go to 2 Thessalonians. Remember, all the T's are together in the New Testament. So if you find any T, like Timothy or Titus, you're close. Thessalonians comes before both Timothy and Titus. After Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'm actually going to read it from my New Living Translation for you this morning because I think it's helpful in this passage. Language is clear. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 7. It says, And God will provide rest for you who are being persecuted and also for us. Okay, so the second coming is going to be about rest for persecuted and even those who aren't persecuted. But hold on, we'll just pause one second. This is going to be a very long sermon. <laughs> Remember the book of Revelation was originally written to seven churches who were experiencing persecution under the Roman Empire. Sometimes that's hard for us to relate to because let's be honest, we don't experience a lot of persecution here in America. But we do experience a lot of opposition in the form of a prevailing culture of hedonism, in the form of a prevailing culture of materialism, in the form of a prevailing culture of one-upism. All of these things are great oppositions to the Christian faith and to living out our our Christianity faithfully so that when we endeavor to do so, we hit some real walls. If you're going to live counter to the culture of hedonism, counter to the culture of materialism, counter to the culture of narcissism, which is like prevailing in our culture, then that's, that's some true opposition. So we may not be persecuted at the end of a sword, but we certainly do have some opposition to being the church in this world. We need to recognize that. In verse 7 again, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7, And God will provide rest for those who are being persecuted and also for us, 
When the Lord Jesus appears from heaven, he will come with his mighty angels in flaming fire, bringing judgment on those who don't know God and on those who refuse to obey the good news that is the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with eternal destruction, forever separated from the Lord and from his glorious power. When he comes on that day, he will receive glory from his holy people. It's you. Praise from all who believe. And this includes you, for you believed what we told you about him. So we keep on praying for you, asking our God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. Okay, here are the moral, ethical, behavioral implications of the second coming. In light of Christ coming to bring peace to his church, to judge an unrepentant world, live in a faithful way. Again, verse 11, so we keep praying for you, asking God to enable you to live a life worthy of his call. May he give you the power to accomplish all the good things your faith prompts you to do. Then the name of our Lord Jesus will be honored because of the way you live and you will be honored along with him. This is all made possible because of the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is an expectation in the way that the Christian is to live between the comings. Christ came once to pay the penalty for sin, to break the power of sin, and now we're to walk in victory over sin by grace and with the help of the Holy Spirit that our lives might bring glory to Jesus Christ, that they might be a witness to the fact that he's coming again to truly judge sin. Because what people begin to think is, nah, he's never coming away. I'm getting away with sin. So that gives license to people. And then others despair. Oh, he's never coming. Look at the condition of our world. Look at what's going on in our world. I'm talking about right now. Look at rampant, unchecked evil in our world. And if we don't have a strong hope of Christ coming again, we can begin to despair. And so what the Christian is called to do is always live in light of his coming. Always live in light of his coming. And what that means is faithful living and endeavoring to live for his glory, as the text just said. Now, back to Revelation chapter 1. Again, verse 7, we've covered every word of it. Behold, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And then he says, even so, amen. Even so, amen. What John does here is he takes the Greek phrase for may it be, even so, and the Hebrew phrase, amen, and he puts them together. In other words, John can't say enough how awesome this is and how true this is. When he puts together even so and amen, it's like he's saying, truly, truly, yes, yes, it is. And yes, yes, it is to be. This is the truth. I mean, John is excited about the second coming of Jesus Christ. If this doesn't excite you, if this doesn't turn you on, you don't have a switch. John is saying, amen, 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 amen. Even so, amen. Gets even more powerful than that. The truth of the second coming of Jesus to establish his rule on earth is so glorious and so important that what the Holy Spirit does in verse eight is he gives us the signature of the father 
on the claim of Christ's coming. Verse 7, Jesus is coming with the clouds. Verse 8, we get the Father speaking, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. This is a father's affirmation, affirmation on the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's as if the father put his signature on John's claim that Jesus is coming with the clouds. It's that huge. It's that important. It's that wonderful. And the father throws the full weight of who he is behind it. Jesus is coming with the clouds. And then the father says, I'm the alpha and the omega authorizing what's being said there. Now, what does it mean that he's the alpha and the omega? That phrase is what's called in grammar a merism. Have you ever heard of that? We'll put it up there for you. A merism. Who's heard of that? Okay, one guy. And I, you're not the guy I expected, Eric, honestly. That's, that's actually amazing. I'm very proud of you. A merism states polar opposites in order to highlight everything between the opposites. So alpha is the A in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the Z. It's the last character in the Greek alphabet. So it's the same as when we say, bro, you got that thing covered A to Z. Or I can handle that business A to Z. Or I know drywall A to Z. Or I know surfboards A to Z. It means you know everything. When he says, I'm the A to Z, I'm the alpha and the omega, God is saying, listen, Christ is coming again. This is being said in the authority of me who is everything. I am the God of all things, the Lord God Almighty. It is an affirming statement of his absolute sovereignty and control. It is an affirming statement of who is going to bring these things about the consummation, the coming of Christ, the establishment of the kingdom, the judgment, the new heavens and the new earth. God is saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the A to Z. I'm the beginning to end. I'm going to bring it about. Now, if you're savvy, you'll recognize that Jesus in his claim of deity, and rightfully so, takes those same titles for himself. He says in verse 17, I am the first and the last, Jesus says of himself. And then in chapter 22, I'll just read it to you. Jesus said in verses 12 and 13, Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. This is who God is. This is who Christ is as the second person of the Trinity. The only question is, is this who he is in our lives? That's the question that's being begged here. That will become visible on earth one day. Jesus was explicit about that. I am coming quickly on the A to Z, the beginning and the end, the first and last. And when I come, it's gonna be like lightning from the east to the west. The whole world is gonna know what's what and who's who. So the call on the Christian is to live that way now. That we would make Jesus the Alpha and the Omega in our lives. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. The fullness of our lives. That we would live for Christ. That's the call of the text. And in the text, these merisms, these opposites that show everything in between, are expressing God's control over all of history. And that God is the one who transcends and guides 
the entire course of history so that when we read the news today, when we read the book of Revelation tomorrow, we're not overwhelmed with fear, with despair, or with despondency or apathy. But we know who the Alpha and the Omega is, who the first and the last is, who the beginning and the end is, who can bring the right end to pass. And so the Christian has hope. The Christian has faith. The Christian has joy. The Christian has perseverance. The Christian has tenacity. The Christian is endeavoring to be faithful by grace because of who God is. And then he says there at the end of verse eight, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is his claim to eternality. This is his claim to eternality, that he's eternal. What he's saying here is Christ is coming again. In the interim, there will be difficult days. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There will be wars and rumors of wars. There will be famines and earthquake and pestilence. There will be tribulation and even a great tribulation. There will be an antichrist and there will be antichrist governments and regimes. ISIS will arise. The world will look incredibly scary. But what he's saying here is, I am the one who was before them all and will outlast them all. I'm the one who is, who was, and who is to come. I will outlast ISIS. I will outlast narcissism in America. I will outlast your materialism. I will outlast the Antichrist, the false beast, and the false the beast and the false prophet. I will outlast the devil. I will myself throw him into the lake of fire. This is who God claims to be. And all of this will become evident in our world when Christ comes again. Now, I'm exactly halfway through the sermon. I'm going to stop here. (laughs) That will help you and that will help me. I'm already ready for next week. I'm surfing all week. because we're already 30 minutes in. But I want us to end on that note. I want us to read it again. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And so listen, let him be that in our lives. There's much more to the second coming. We'll get to it next week. But this week, what if we endeavor together to let Jesus be everything to us? You know, there's people in our body this week who are staring cancer in the face. There's people in our body this week who have lost children. There's people in this body this week that are facing all sorts of scary, difficult things. But we know the A to Z. We know the one who is before all of our drama and our troubles and our heartaches. And we know the one who will outlast all of them. Christ, who loves us and freed us from our sins 
is with us even to the end when he comes again. And we will always be with the Lord. And so this week, persevere. This week, have hope. This week, rejoice, even in the midst of trials, knowing that this one who is in control loves you dearly. Lord, give us grace to live that way just just this week. Lord, help us just this week. Pray for all those who are hurting in our body. All those who are fearful and overwhelmed, your grace and your presence, that you be Lord God Almighty to them this week, who was, who is, and who is to come, who rules and reigns and is in control. Thank you for the day that will become visible. We pray for our world today that seems so out of control. By faith, we believe that you're sovereign and on the throne. We love the day when that throne becomes evident on earth. Until that day, help us to be faithful to your causes. Help us to persevere in difficulty. Help us to be tenacious and aggressive in mission. Help us to rejoice in the forgiveness that's been brought to us in Christ and the fullness that will be brought to us when he returns. Help us this week, Lord, to live in the hope of your coming. Paul wrote to a church that had all sorts of difficulties in it and said to them, whenever you take communion, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. Whenever you take communion, you're rejoicing in the salvation that has been brought to us and will be brought to us. And in that act of faith, we're strengthened and given cause for joy. So let's take communion together today as we worship.